we're loving Highsmith because she's a good person, and Renfield's got a Cairo conspiracy at the Assassin Club. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Groovy. Hello and welcome back to the podcast then. Right, uh, we've got loads of new movies to talk about this week that, of course, Van has seen and I haven't. So we're going to start <laughs> with uh, we're going to start with a good person, which I knew Van would want to talk about because it's got Florence Pugh in and, of course, Mar- Morgan Freeman as well. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm going to want to talk about any movie that stars Florence Pugh, like hashtag Queen Flow for life. And you know what? Annoyingly, this movie literally opens with her sat behind a piano looking gorgeous in a red sort of silky dress, like singing and doing an incredible job of it. And you sat there thinking, is there anything this woman can't do? Like, damn. <laughs> um, so from there, it's worth pointing out, this is uh, written and directed by Zach Braff. You remember JD from Scrubs? Zach Braff. Oh, right. He's directed yeah. it and written it. He, wow. he has written and directed this. Now, it's worth noting that he actually was Florence Pugh's boyfriend for a long time. So this is this is, this is is an awesome case of getting getting the person you're dating to do you a solid star in this movie. She even cut her hair off for this movie, which I'll get to in the plot in a moment. So... Uh, Florence Pugh is Alison. She is a young woman who seems to have it all. You know, she's got the sort of the perfect uh, uh, fiance, you know, life ahead of her kind of thing. She's driving her fiance's sister and brother-in-law, I think it is, to the airport one day when they get into a car accident. Sort of freak of luck, not really anyone's fault, just they get into a car accident. She wakes up in the hospital a short time later, not really knowing what's happening, just want to get out of the, get out of bed kind of thing, uh, get on with the life, only to be told they died. They died, she's the only survivor, she gets to walk away from it. As part of her treatment, we jump forward in time, and as part of this treatment, she has developed a dependency on the painkillers that she has been prescribed in this time, which is sort of, you know, that's as, as sort of cascaded with her emotional torment as well. And she basically finds herself in the throes of opioid addiction. She then goes to uh, um, an NA meeting or an addict, you know, an AA meeting or an NA meeting, um, at which she encounters her former fiance because their relationship has deteriorated in this year his father played by morgan freeman who is now also the guardian and, and parent figure to the daughter of the uh, the two who died in the car and the and she and you know the grieving daughter enter into this sort of unlikely friendship this unlikely sort of you know almost like an emotional bond where their friendship becomes how they manage to work through this. I've got a clip for you. Um, This is Morgan Freeman and Florence Pugh meeting at the AA meeting for the very first time after this accident. Alison, don't go. This was a mistake. No, no, it isn't. Trust me. I know how hard it is to get here. It's damn near impossible and you did it. Don't run away now because of me. There are thousands of meetings. I'll find another one. Wow, yeah, but this one has the best snacks. I want to go. No, no, no. You've made it this far, and I wouldn't. I don't want to be here. Nobody does in the beginning. I don't want to be anywhere. Then you are definitely in the right spot. Do you know, I just can't get over the fact that there is only two degrees of separation between me and Morgan Freeman because I interview Florence Pugh's dad quite often on my radio show and obviously she's well now working with Morgan Freeman Uh, indeed crazy but um tell me does Morgan Freeman play Morgan Freeman because I find I love him but I find in a lot of movies he's kind of always the same person 
But, I mean, the answer to your question is, is Morgan Freeman awake? And if the answer to that question is yes, then the answer is also yes to, is he playing Morgan Freeman? Because that's <laughs> Morgan Freeman's only setting. And to be fair, do we want Morgan Freeman on any other setting? No. Um, yeah, he's, exactly. He's, he's Morgan Freeman. We love him for being Morgan Freeman. Now, there is obviously a, um, a previous working relationship between writer-director Zach Braff and Morgan Freeman. Um, in the crime caper, I think it was going to... Going in style a couple of years ago, which was a sort of a pensioner heist movie that, that, that they did together, which was, I thought, actually not bad. I quite enjoyed that one. I think it was Michael Caine as well, in that memory serves. Now, as you can hear from the clip, the, the performances are, are there. They're giving it their all. It doesn't sound like there's a bum note to be found in the performances based on that clip, right? It's, it's sturdy drama, yeah. well-delivered. We know these people can act. Supporting cast as well, Celeste O'Connor, Molly Shannon as Florence Pugh's mum, I, I quite liked in here as well. Uh, Chinaza Uche as uh, the former fiancé, uh, Nathan. Zoe Lister-Jones turns up as well. Solid, solid cast. Great performances all round. And actually, to be fair to Zach Braff, I would never call him a bad director. Now, you look at his body of work, you look at things like Garden State. Um, I don't think he directed uh, The Last Kiss. I think he had a hand in producing or writing The Last Kiss, which I really loved. And he's, I think, probably the definitive um, male text of this century on the quarter-life crisis. I think, as far as that goes, no one's doing that better this century. Um, but obviously, in, in you know past couple of years, Zach Braff has gone on to a bit more pedestrian, a bit more popcorn-y fare, particularly with going uh, going in style. Now, here what you have is something more akin to a very hallmarky movie. It is a bit TV movie. It is a bit melodramatic. It is a bit, let's heap it on thick and keep it slushy at times. But the cast are such that they are able to elevate it ever so slightly. The film will not win any awards or anything like that. This is this is not anyone's idea of like an Oscar baby or anything. I mean, obviously we're in the wrong time of year for that. Anyway, but this is not anyone's idea of like an awards contender. This is not one you stick in front of film critics because you want five stars and all the dramatic you know, kudos. It's not going to get that. But at the same time, it's not quite a popcorn flick. This is something that I think is very much in the right place. It's had a limited theatrical for the last couple of weeks. It's now on Amazon Prime from this week, which is why we're covering it. Also, we needed an extra film, if I'm really honest, we were one shy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not too big a man to admit. Um, and also, you know, it stars Florence Pugh, so it is always worth paying attention. If she's in it, it's, it's usually worth you know, paying attention to there being a reason why. In this case, obviously, we know that there is that that you know that that sort of you know very friendly relationship between them. That, that's fair enough, um, and I don't think that's you know a, a statement on a lack of quality. But I do think that this is a script that I think could have done with a punch up. Not that it's an inherently bad film. What you're talking about is a three star film that has some four star performances, but never quite gets above those three stars. So I'm guessing that really, as far as the the narrative goes, it's it's mm. focused mainly on the pair of them coming off of those painkillers. Is that kind of the main part of the whole story? I mean, that that's not so much a factor in the in, in the case of the you know the, the the orphaned daughter. In her case, it's more you know she's lost she's lost her parental figure. She's stuck with her grandfather. She you know there is this life that she thought that was ahead of her that she's she's been robbed of. And at the same time, she is face to face with in her mind the person who took her parents away from us. So there is that element of the relationship to work through as well. It is quite well done. And I do think Celeste O'Connor plays it perfectly, like very well. It's not too bratty. And there is a risk with, because I think she's been about 15, 16, something like that. Well, no, definitely over 16, um, given certain elements of the plot. 
I do think that there would be a, a very easy temptation for that to slide into quite a bratty performance. And it never quite gets there. It manages to stay pretty grounded. Like I say, performances are better than the film. Not that the film is inherently bad. It's just a little bit weak source, a little bit hallmark at times. Well, if you want to make your own mind up, you can. A good person, uh, as Van just said, is uh, already in cinemas and on Amazon Prime from today. We've got a couple, actually, a couple of new ones to talk about in a second. We're going to talk about Loving Highsmith and Cairo Conspiracy as well, both in cinemas from today. And we'll see what Van thought of those in just a sec. Stay where you are. Hello and welcome back to today's podcast. Uh, we've got a couple of movies to talk about here that uh, Van has already seen. Cairo Conspiracy in a moment. First then, let's dive into Loving Highsmith. Uh, this is based on Patricia Highsmith's personal writings and accounts, isn't it? It is indeed uh, written and directed for the screen by uh, Eva Vitaya. This is, this, effectively, this this uses... Uh, do you know Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones? Uh, oh, what's her name? Brienne of... Brienne of oh god, a really tall blonde lady. She's yeah. like nine don't, feet tall. Don't ask I, me I to remember in, names. <laughs> I ran into her in a corridor years ago with Ryan Johnson at the press junket for Star Wars: The Last Jedi, and I've never felt more like a hobby in my life than when I was stood next to this lady, Brienne of Tarth. I think she played in Game of Thrones, Gwendolyn Christie, otherwise known as Captain Phasma from Star Wars: Force Awakens and, and Last Jedi. Yeah. Anyway, she provides the voice of Patricia Highsmith in a documentary that uses some talking heads, but also uses archival footage and the writings of Patricia Highsmith, her personal journals, things like that, as narrated by Gwendolyn Christie. And what we get is a portrait into, you know, not so much the side of Patricia Highsmith that we've never seen, but access on a level we've never seen, because evidently quite a private person. Have a listen. Pat was more dedicated than any writer I'd ever met. Certainly, she was very famous when I met her. Strangers on a Train, Miss Highsmith. It was bought by a celebrated film director. Yes, Hitchcock uh, took an interest in it. What I wonder is, you don't admire Ripley. He is a killer. Yes, but lately he, uh, he kills only when he thinks it's right. <laughs> wow, this uh, this sounds deep, if I'm honest. I mean, even reading the synopsis that basically says themes of love and its defining influence on identity, like it feels like it's something that could really suck you in. Oh, it, it, to be fair, it, it really does. Now, of the two films we're talking of in this block, it's not even the best one, to be fair. Spoiler alert. But this is quite compelling. Um, now, I didn't know an awful lot about Trisha Highsmith beyond she wrote A, B, and C. Like, that, that's really it. And we're talking about, if we're going with, you know, the, the Patricia Highsmith's uh, sacred texts, for lack of a better term, we're talking about Carol, which was adapted for the screen, I think, 2015, with uh, Kate, uh, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, um, was very, very acclaimed at the time. Uh, Todd Haynes, I think, directed. Uh, very acclaimed, was up for Oscars that year, and uh, I remember it being a huge, a huge deal that I really considered it to be at the time. But I wasn't really a fan of the novel. I know that, like I say, that is kind of a sacred text, particularly of young gay women because it's a coming of age rite of passage kind of a thing. Uh, she mm. also wrote uh, *Strangers on a Train*, as you can hear in the clip, which best remembered now, obviously, uh, for, for the Hitchcock movie. And if you're me for the Danny DeVito, Billy Crystal um, spin, throw Mama from the train in 1988, which if you've never seen it, is one of the all-time great comedies. Uh, she also, of course, you know, came up with the character of Mr. Ripley, of Tom Ripley, you know, from, from Talented Mr. Ripley with Matt Damon yeah. and Jude Law. And we get to see, you know, clips of these movies, you know, and, and the legacy that, you know, 
that sort of side of her legacy in between all this stuff. So it's not just an old-timey thing and there's no casting an eye forward. So you get more of an insight into, you know, the mind behind this, the life she was in, the relationship she shared with her mother, for instance, which seemed to be both a positive and negative relationship simultaneously, was, was quite suffocating, was quite toxic, was pushing her towards a lifestyle she didn't particularly uh, want to leave. But at the same time, we also have this journey of self-discovery, um, her exploring, uh, for instance, the gay scene of New York in, I think, the 1950s. And I will say as well, the insight into that, particularly seeing that from a female vantage point, is fascinating. Because particularly when you go into the gay subculture of that era, it does historically nearly always tend to be from the male gaze, from the male perspective. It tends to be, you know, gay clubs specifically centered towards men. Fascinating to see, actually, the female side of that. And how for security and safeties were considered. And things like that. There was a lot in there that I, I found quite fascinating. I do think uh, some more of a cursory knowledge of Highsmith is needed than what I possessed, because I was left in the dark a little bit. It's also worth noting this is in black and white for going with the in the dark metaphor. Um, if you are someone who knows Highsmith's work, um, who, particularly if you're a woman who has you know enjoyed and read Carol, and you would like more of the story behind that tome, of which it seems you know there's more weight it seems behind the writing than actually in the writing, and it's not exactly a light read either on the page or on the screen then I think this is something you're going to find absolutely unmissable. So this is Loving Highsmith. He's only 83 minutes long and he's in cinemas from today. Like I say, features the vocal talents of Gwendolyn Christie as well as Highsmith. Okay, all right. Well, um, let's move on to Cairo Conspiracy, which I know you're excited to talk about here. So talk to me. What's this all about? Right, so originally released under the title Walad Min Aljana. Uh, also released, I think in I think it was released in Euro in some European countries as Boy from Heaven, but has actually been released in the US and now the UK as Cairo Conspiracy, which is a bit dumber a title than what the movie really requires. Okay, so it's about Adham, young uh, college age son of a fisherman, so has grown up poor, gets the chance to attend a prestigious Cairo university that also happens to be the central hub for, I think it's the Sunni um, educational system, so, uh, sort of seat of power for uh, Sunni Islam, has become sort of their central hub, both in terms of education, but also indoctrination as well. No sooner has he gotten there than he finds himself enlisted by the authorities as effectively an intel gatherer to actually go in and take down names, note the faces, who's going where, and before long, oh my god, you've got the Arabic version of The Departed. And I'm in. Brilliant. Like, as soon as you, like, advertise it as that. The title's garbage, don't get me wrong. Like, Cairo Conspiracy, nonsense title, like, terrible. I don't know why they use it. Boy from Heaven works a lot better. But yes... This is Arabic, The Departed. This is Al Departed. I love this. Um, great performances all around. Um, Faraz Faraz, who plays um, uh, the, the Colonel, is Colonel Ibrahim, I want to say offhand. Colonel Ibrahim, uh, played by Faraz Faraz, um, who's effectively the, the, the handler, the cop who's running this. Great performance there. And unlikely tough guy. Like, really, un just, just unthinkable. A, a character that goes through real shifts, who goes through. A, a, a complete change of not so much motivations but tactics and style through this. But uh, Tafik Baham, who plays um, Adham, 
a really good performance. Really solid. Sells the tension. Uh, sells the nerves. Uh, absolutely captivating turn here. I don't know him from anything else. I've not seen him in anything else, but he won me here hard. Uh, so he's, he's he's got my money for life. But I, I just thought, I mean, this is um, screenplay and screenplay by and directed by Tariq Saleh, who I forget where Tariq Saleh's from. I think he's Turkish. And actually, there's a slick style to this, but at the same time, it doesn't feel over-glamorized. You are bought into the palpable reality of it. This is... I'd say very akin to The Departed. Imagine The Departed without the Scorsese gloss, and you've really got something close to this. I thought this was an absolutely captivating thriller. Not one that relies on, you know, there's going to be a bullet in the back of your head any minute. This is not that level of Departed, but this is the dramatic thriller side of The Departed, and it sells it well. It works within um, the, the, way it, the way it explores the more nuanced elements of the culture in which, is it, which, is it, which it is infiltrating, which is exploring as well. I thought it was done without sacrificing any of that for entertainment value. It doesn't feel, although it is quite popcorny at times, it doesn't feel like it's sacrificing its intellectual heft or its, yeah, or its believability or its naturalism for that popcorny quality. And I loved that. I thought I was really great about it. I, I, this is a film, to be honest, I would watch again. It's a little bit on the long side. Like I think it clocks in just, just a hair over two hours, and I feel like you could maybe whittle this down by 20 minutes to pick up the pace a bit more. Yeah. But, hell of a ride. Like, really, hell of a ride. Did not expect that this was going to grip me anywhere near as it did. Like I say, you read the synopsis yourself. You, you thought it sounded dull, right? Oh, the synopsis sounds really boring. It just basically, the bit I read, the son of a fisherman offered the privilege to study at a university in Cairo, yeah. and it, someone becomes a pawn in a conflict between Egypt's religious and political elites. Like, to me, that's guff on a page, and I wouldn't bother seeing it. With the ridiculous title, Cairo Conspiracy, as well. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I know exactly what you mean, and I was expecting that movie as well. I was thinking, here we go, another direct-to-DVD thriller. This is going to be like, <laughs> mind you, to be fair, we got we got kind of surprised recently with uh, was it Law of Tehran? We were talking about Law of Tehran recently. That that was quite a surprise as well. Yeah. So I don't know if uh, if Middle Eastern uh, Middle Eastern thrillers seem to be having a moment like an unlikely moment for Middle Eastern thrillers. If that's the case, sign me up. I'm, I'm on board because after Law of Tehran and now this, um, like I say, Middle Eastern thrillers, they are definitely having that moment. So Cairo conspiracy. I know, I know, you're going to groan when you're asking for it at the box office. But uh, yeah, it's it's worth the ticket money. Genuinely, see this. This is really good. Well, whoever's writing these synopsis for these movies <laughs> needs firing. Otherwise, you know the publicists, obviously. <laughs> All right, so that's Cairo Conspiracy in cinemas from today. Uh, we're going to be back in just a bit where we will look at Renfield, which is also in cinemas from today. Stay right where you are. Hello and welcome back. We uh, couple of, I've got a couple of new movies left to talk about here, if I can get my words out. Um, <laughs> Assassin Club in a second. First, though, I've got to say, the, yeah. the images of this I've seen, I haven't seen the trailer, but I've seen images. It looks fantastic. Renfield in cinemas from today. Tell me all about this. It looks great. <laughs> Right, so this is a new movie from uh, Chris McKay, who gave us uh, The Tomorrow War uh, with Chris Pratt a couple of years ago on, on Prime Video. I think we reviewed that together. Yeah, uh, yeah. Also, the Lego Batman movie was his as well. Like He's the other McKay who isn't Adam McKay. McKay, right. McKay, the Americans seem to 
flip on this one. Uh, but he's he's the Lego Batman guy, not the big short guy. Is 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 the, the important thing here, right? So this right. Do you know the character of Renfield from from Dracula Law? Vaguely. Sort of the Igor type yeah. in, in, in yeah. the scenario. He's kind of the, the human helper, the familiar, if you if you know the law, if you know the law. And I'm saying law with an R-E rather than yeah. Uh, so right, Nicholas Holt <clears throat> here plays uh Renfield. I think it's Robert Montague Renfield, as we are told, who is Dracula's familiar. As the movie opens, he has recently relocated to New Orleans, where he has taken possession of a derelict hospital that he is is using as a base in which to house a debilitated, absolutely destroyed Count Dracula, played by Nicolas Cage. We are shown the events that led them to this, which basically involve your Van Helsing-style vampire hunters having tracked Dracula to his castle and finally taken him down. Dracula gets the last laugh, but gets burnt to a crisp in the process and needs to regenerate. So it's one of those cases of put him in the dirt, lock him in the coffin, he'll be fine in a couple hundred years, just occasionally feed him a human. So while he's regenerating over this you know, lengthy period of time, Renfield, who as Dracula's familiar, is bestowed certain superpowers himself whenever he's uh, able to eat an insect. Whenever he can eat a spider he gains a portion of Dracula's physical abilities, but without the need to feed on blood. He is, however, also immortal. And his whole job in the world is effectively to exist as the footman to Count Dracula, who again, I should point out, is played by Nicolas Cage in full Bela Lugosi mode. So we are talking original universal horror level Dracula played by Nicolas Cage. However... Renfield's at a difficult stage in life. He lives in the 21st century, after all, and he finds himself going to a support group for people who struggle with codependency in toxic relationships. And he sits there, (laughs) night after night, listening to all these people talk about, you know, this abusive boyfriend they've had or that, that boss that's tortured them, and he relates to certain bits. He then accidentally finds himself drawn into this war between a renegade would-be, you know, solo honest cop in the whole of New Orleans, played by Orkafina, and a crime family, led by Shoria Dashlu from The Expanse, and her son, Ben Schwartz, aka the real-life Sonic the Hedgehog. And this, this crime war winds up not only sucking him in, but also providing him something of the release and the escape he needs from the clutches of Dracula. However, it does also suck in Dracula himself. So I've got a clip for you. This is Renfield at one of these meetings having something of a breakthrough moment. Renfield, this is Codependency 101. A narcissist will take full advantage of a codependent's low self-esteem, but you're the one with the real power. And all you gotta do is take it back. How do I do that? Focus on your needs. I mean, I just haven't thought about any of my needs in years. But if you were to stop focusing on his needs, what would happen? If I don't... Yeah, what would happen? Stop focusing on his knees, what will happen? He won't grow to full power. There he 
Exactly. He won't grow to full power. What? That's so weird. Why would you phrase it like that? But yes, he's right. I already love this because I've, I've got, I mean, I've seen, like I said, I've seen the images. I love the teeth, the, the costumes, the teeth. And the, it just looks brilliant. But also hearing that and knowing that it's got some great comedy moments in there as well. Yeah. It's right up my street. Now that, incidentally, just to start off, is the big negative to the film. Like you say, it sounds funny. The concept is inherently funny. You will wish the film was funnier. The film is not quite as zip-bang humorous as it should be. It tries for it, but you do feel like it needed one more pass on the script to punch up some of the gags. Not helping that is the fact that this is the one time in history that Nicholas Bloody Cage has decided, maybe I should rein it in a bit. Maybe maybe I, I could be a bit much in this role. Maybe I should rein it in. And you think, come on, Nick, of all the times in your entire 41 years of your career, this is the one time you needed to go full tilt boogie. And yeah. he doesn't. And he kind of goes for, and, and I understand why he has, because the performances that Nicolas Cage is specifically aping and paying homage to here I can tell you from interviews and you know just knowledge of Nicolas Cage are performances that he holds quite dear. He holds these performances in quite serious regard, not even in a schlocky way, just in a that is acting kind of a way. And so I can see that there is a reverence there for him. And that does come across, to be fair, but it feels like it's respectfulness at the cost of engagement, which Again, if you're going to attribute that to anyone, Nicolas Cage seems like the last guy in the universe that you'd, you do. However, Nicholas Holt, very charming, very likable leading man. I enjoyed Awkwafina a lot. I think the scene stealer here, though, is Ben Schwartz as, as one of the villains, as the son of the crime family, who kind of gets... If you know your Parks and Recreation, on which Ben Schwartz really kind of got his big break, if you know Parks and Recreation, this is straight-up John Raffio. Like this is this is straight up crime boss Jean Ralphio in a vampire movie. Now, on that note as well, you mentioned the imagery for it. Did you ever see Warm Bodies uh, from 2014 by any chance? No. It, no it, this is a hit and miss one. Not many people it, people either seem to have seen it or not. It's one of those. It was a a romantic comedy about zombies starring Nicholas Holt, and it has a very similar tone to this, which I actually found at some points kind of weirdly complimentary. So Nicholas Holt has done the zombies, now he's gone and done vampires, you kind of feel like he needs to do werewolves next to complete the set. Uh, Awkwafina plays Awkwafina, you know, like you were talking about Morgan Freeman earlier, she's just doing Awkwafina and it works, to be fair. However, I do think what's really going to prove to be the memorable takeaway from this movie, uh, more than just one particular scene, and there is one particular scene, is an element of the violence that carries through it, which is dealt with the way that it depicts vampiric powers, particularly in relation to regular human beings, is among some of the best I have seen depicted on a film screen. There is a sequence in this that involves a motel courtyard and a SWAT team that is going to haunt my nightmares. And I say that knowing full well that I laughed like a gibbon through it. Like, genuinely, just chuckles. It's that level of violence that you can't help but cackle sadistically at. But when it's over, 
you kind of feel like you need a shower. It was brilliant. Think, think Zombieland. Remember when Zombieland would go really extreme and drop yeah. pianos on people? That, like that, like we're talking about that level of just absolutely sadistic blood torrent fun. Like that level of sadism, but done with absolute glee and cack hand and joy. I, the only way I can describe it now. It's quite a short film. It's only about 93, 95 minutes. I can look it up exactly. I don't know why I'm conjuring it from memory. It is uh, 93 minutes long. And genuinely a lot of fun. Not quite as humorous as I think it needs to be. I think Warm Bodies in particular with, with Nicholas Hall was a lot funnier. But this works. I think this is a good time at the movies. I don't think anyone's coming away disappointed. I think if the worst complaint you can come away with is... Nicholas Cage is taking this too seriously, then in context, I think that's not that bad. And also, maybe a couple more jokes needed. Fine, but there are enough jokes that land very, very well. Quite a juxtaposed position there, really, with Nicholas Cage mm. not quite taking it, well, taking it maybe too seriously. But then on <laughs> the other hand, you've got all of that graphic violence and stuff going on at the same time. Yeah, there is also, I'm just going to say this, I, there's also Sharia Dashlu and. There is something about Shoria Darshlu, and I'm I'm not sure if this is the Middle Eastern man in me, but if Shoria Darshlu wanted to simply sit before a camera and read the phone book for 93 minutes, I'd I'd listen. I'd I'd, I'd be first in line and I'd, I'd listen. And I'd never feel bored. There's something about that woman's voice. She's she's, she's like the Middle Eastern Kathleen Turner. It's just something about that voice, and she's brilliant. Underutilized, you probably remove her from the entire movie, and it wouldn't change the narrative at all. But she's just one of those performers that it's always nice to see on screen. It's nice to see her get shot in a good film role for a change as well. Well, there you have it. You can make your own mind up. Um, I certainly have. I want to see this. Uh, Renfield is out in cinemas from today. Right, we've got one last film to look at, Assassin's Club, and we'll see what Van thought of that in just a second. Hello and welcome back then for one last ride and we've got one movie left that is out in cinemas today. It's called Assassin Club. Now, what's this all about, Van? And was it any good? I mean, first of all, no. And what <laughs> is it about? Well, it's about a club of assassins. I mean, it's not a particularly clever title. Anyway, uh, right, so this stars Henry Golding. Do you remember Henry Golding from Crazy Rich Asians? And, oh, uh, G- yes. And G.I. Joe Origins Snake Eyes, I think it was. Didn't watch that, but I do know. I I did. First in line to see G.I. Joe Origins Snake Eyes. Because I love a G.I. Joe movie. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I loves me a G.I. Joe movie. You could pour Rise of Cobra in me or the Live Long Day, sir. I don't actually like Retaliation as much as I like Rise of Cobra, which I'm aware is against the, the traditional grain. But, you know, to hell with it. It's, it, it's my spot reviewing this, not anyone else's. Uh, right. He's back. This time, he is Morgan Gaines. Morgan Gaines is a hitman, and we meet him about to take out a target with a sniper rifle when someone tries to take him out with a sniper rifle. He gets away, uh, only for his target to you know, wind up being taken out by this other assassin. Gets back to his handler, who's played by Sam Neill, and Sam Neill says, OK, don't worry about it. These things happen. I've got another job for you. In fact, I've got a bunch of them. And do you know what? I'm gonna let the clip do it for me. Have a listen. There's a new job. Yeah, I told you I'm out. It's not that simple. It's six separate contracts, and each one pays a million dollars. Tell me about it. 
they're assassins, Morgan, like you. And they've been hired to kill me. And each other. Fact is, Morgan, they were coming for you. Whether you accept it or not. This is a game. And if you want to live, you have to play. Try not to reduce the splendid city to rubble. Can't make any promises. That just reminded me a bit of Saw, but from what you're saying, <laughs> it's nowhere near anything as good as Saw. Oh, God, no. Put it this way. The word ass appears in the title Assassin Club twice, which is ironic for a movie as literally half-arsed as this. And... <laughs> I didn't I believe it, I didn't actually write that. I just came up with that now. That's <laughs> which, brilliant. I wish, wish I'd thought of that when I was actually doing the, the previous reviews that I actually had to write down because that seems especially clever. Um, right, no. Um, do you remember in the early 2000s, there was a, a brief period in which every bloody Hollywood thriller had to be set in Eastern Europe. And it was because Hollywood discovered the joys of the Eastern European tax break. So all of a sudden we had an endless crop of really crap action movies starring like decent actors that all took place in like Prague and Czechoslovakia and different places around Europe. Um, I seem to remember Bad Company with Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. As, as one of the better ones, actually. And of course, the, the high watermark of all of these was, was the Bourne identity, which then gave us the Bourne series. However, it did also have the dizzying lows of something like Ballistic X versus Sever, starring, I think that was Rebecca Romaine and Anthony, uh, Antonio Banderas. Now, this is much closer to Ballistic X versus Sever than it is Bourne believe me. First of all, hour and 51 minutes that will somehow feel like a fortnight. And I do mean like a fortnight. This has all of the narrative nuance of a series of PlayStation cutscenes for a particularly dull game. I mean, dull is the watchword here. There is barely competent action, and that is the only thing propping it up. It's um, directed by, I think it's Camille uh, Camille Delamar? Delamaray, I think, who directed... If I remember this correctly, the transporter refueled the particularly forgettable reboot of the transporter series oh, yeah. that had previously been just Jason Statham. And I think about 2015, 2016, just after Deadpool, they rebooted it with, um, what is his name? Also a Game of Thrones alum, Ed Screen. Ed Screen and Ray Stevenson from Punisher Warzone were the, the sort of reboot characters. And it wasn't terrible it was pretty bad but by, bad by the standards of the transporter movies less so by the standards of other movies um right so competent action however this really feels like a paycheck movie this is one of those where everybody there feels like they are there for okay i've got six days that i have to be in prague and i'm picking up 130k for this okay use my signs and it feels like it feels like a movie in which every single person on screen at any moment read that script for the very first time just before they walked onto that set so they turned up to work that day they were given their sides for the day and that's the first time they read that particular scene it feels like it. Nobody feels especially present. And for a movie <clears throat> which, to be fair, has a pretty decent hook, you know, Hitman series of, you know, take out six assassins that are also going to take out you, so it's not really a job you have a lot of say in. Great stuff, you know. Henry Golding should be a pretty natural fit for that. I mean, you look at uh, how he, uh, you know, handled himself with action in Snake Eyes, for instance. You're like, okay, I know this guy can do this. 
This is nowhere near as charismatic or as engaging as Snake Eyes G.I. Joe Origins, which, believe me, is saying something. But, you know, that movie had Andrew Koji. This has Sam Neill in paycheck mode. It also features one of the dumbest twists. And when I say dumb, I mean transparent, obvious, lame, given away by the trailer, given away by the poster, and just nonsensical of any movie. I've seen in a long, long time. And I'm talking about a movie that literally features a, you know, a, a mystery character that you can see and hear who is played by the exact person who is also playing someone else. And you're thinking, I- I'm confused as to... what? Wait, what? And yeah. I should mention, this, this mystery character features an incredibly bad wig and terrible contact lenses. So you're very aware that this is a person in a disguise. And you're like, why is that actor doing... Oh, it's meant to be a twist. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I have working eyes and I've seen a movie before. Ah, uh, yeah. It's bad. It is really, really bad. It's, just, it's bum-numbingly long because it is so dull. It yeah. drags out every... Like I say about that twist, for instance. You're like, this isn't a twist. I mean, Geostorm did a better job of its own twist than this movie. And Geostorm was a movie that had a whodunit with two suspects, one of whom was played by Ed Harris. I mean, come on! you know. Yeah, twists are meant to be at the end, like The Village, for example. Yeah, When you get to the twist and you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. I mean, we, here we're talking about a villain reveal. And when your villain is constantly trying to kill you, there's a, obviously a sort of an issue there. I mean, I, right, it's also worth noting. And this is kind of testimony to testament to how you know badly put together this is henry i keep going to call him henry cavill uh henry golding cannot decide if he's british despite the fact that the character is british or american and he flip-flops on that decision sometimes mid-sentence i'm aware of the irony i'm aware of the irony of me being the person to say that because i know that i can do it but i actually have reasons he does not so why he occasionally slips into Snake Eyes mode with that really awful, really forced American accent and then flips back to the BBC travel presenter that we know he was, is anybody's guess. I know why. It's because he only got the script that morning. Entirely likely, isn't it? (laughs) It sounds like it. It really does. Then you you get to Daniela Melchior uh, from The Suicide Squad. She played Ratcatcher 2 in Suicide Squad. And I had never seen her in anything before The Suicide Squad. And I I found her incredibly endearing, charming, very winning and likeable in The Suicide Squad. I'm now convinced more than anything that that is just the writing of James Gunn and she is, in fact, a terrible actress. And that more or less anyone could have phoned in a script that good from James Gunn, because god damn, she is dreadful here. I mean, oh, no. really dreadful. And you know I said about them and getting the script that morning? No, I feel like she got it and just like, kind of just, like, sounded it out like they were pictograms. The words were just pictograms from her, <laughs> and she was just sounding out the vowels. Like, it's that level of bad performance. Uh, there's quite a few actors here who I really would have expected better from, obviously, you know, including Henry Golding, because, you know, I mean, I mean Henry Golding's corner. I want that man to be Bond. You know, give him James Bond. At the very least, give him the saint. He or Reggae Jean Page should be the saint. Like, when they eventually get around to doing that character again, which I think is happening, uh, it's going to be Chris 
time, though, I think, annoyingly, because why not get an American to play a British character? Although, apparently, if you got Henry Golding to do it, he'd also just play it as an American, it bloody seems. <laughs> this was absolutely tear-your-hair-out infuriating. It took me back to, that say, that early 2000s sub-born Eastern European tax break heyday, and believe me, nobody needs to revisit that, ever. Don't see this. Whatever you do, I mean, it's in cinemas. I think it is on Paramount Plus in the US. And it's worth noting that that is exactly where it belongs. Because if a streaming platform had released this as a direct-to-streaming movie, it's about the only thing that would have made any sense. Because, you know they say, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me. You don't want to be a member of this club at all. Assassin Club, dreadful. You'll want to be kicked out immediately. It's a bit of a shame, really, because with a title like Assassin Club, you expect a little bit more out of it. But You know, you say that, but let's go through the numbers on this one. Assassin's Creed. Now, as movies with Assassin, from the last few movies, from the last All few right. years. Assassin's Creed, crap. Yeah. Um, American Assassin, crap. Assassin Club, crap. Stop <laughs> putting Assassin in movie titles, because apparently it just adds crap. That's it. <laughs> well, there you go. In cinemas from today, if you want to make your own mind up. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so next week, when we are back, uh, we've got the Three yeah. Musketeers. D'Artagnan. Yeah, next week, packed week. And, I mean, D'Artagnan. Three Musketeers, colon, D'Artagnan. Yeah. It's even the biggest film out. And if you release a Three Musketeers movie... Baby, you got my ticket money. I am a complete whore for the Three Musketeers. And I Same. will say, I will champion 1993's forgotten Kiefer Sutherland-led Three Musketeers until I am blue in the goddamn face. Also, kick-ass theme song, baby. All for one, all for love by Brian Adams, Rod Stewart and Sting. Now that is how you do it, son. Uh, next yeah. week, we also have Missing, which I saw at an Odeon Limitless screening, I think three months ago. So I've been sat on that this entire time Dying notes. Yeah, I made notes. I mean, the best part is, <laughs> the best part is, thanks to American streaming, we can watch this again now as well. Um, Sick of myself is next week. I was invited to a Q and A with the director for that. I'm not gonna be able to make it. Uh, the documentary How to Blow Up a Pipeline is next week, uh, as well as uh, as well as a thousand and one, and most pivotally of all, and I have been waiting a very, very long time for this movie. I have missed out on two opportunities to see this because of. Well, actually, because of this, because we've been recording this, I have missed out on two screenings of this movie. They keep putting them on bloody Thursday nights. I don't know why. However, Monday morning, I will be starting my week as I mean to go on with Evil Dead Rise. I am so excited. Klaatu, Barata, Nick, too. The Deadites are back. No Bruce Campbell this time, as far as I know. But, you know, forgive and forget. Well, we'll see what you think about that uh, next week, of course, when we are back on Friday. Uh, so that's all we've got time for this week on Off Screen. I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Connor, and we shall return. Listener.